Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning. I am so glad you all made it up. That's great. I don't know if you've ever had a spiritual high. I look back at my life and I can, I can see moments in my life when I would say, boy, that was a spiritual high. But have you ever had a wonderful spiritual high, a mountaintop experience, only the next day or next week to come crashing down? Perhaps for some of you, your Christian life might feel something like this. Well, that's the history of Israel right there. That, that's exactly the history of Israel. And, and I really think for a lot of us, we can identify with that. You have these wonderful spiritual highs and then you come crashing down. Uh, but life wasn't necessarily meant to be lived like that. Uh, when I think of the Lord crying out to Ephraim, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judea? Your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes away early. And so he was referring to Israel's loyalty. I mean, it was just up and down and up and down. It's like the morning cloud, you think, in a, in a parched land when there's, when there's no rain. Oh, a morning cloud. Oh, good, there's going to be rain today. But their loyalty was like that. It just, it never lasted. It was never there. And you see this tremendous cycle of, of ups and downs, ups and downs, and just confession and repentance, and then all of a sudden sin again, and just this roller coaster existence. Well, let me ask you, I, I'm sure everybody has experienced that to some degree, but are you ready to get off of the roller coaster? And I think that's exactly where Nehemiah takes us now in chapter 9. He wants us to get off of the roller coaster. Um, and we were at the top last week when Doug covered Nehemiah chapter 8. That is the absolute top. It's the pinnacle. It is, it's the most awesome experience you could ever imagine. And Nehemiah doesn't want this same circular process to take place that has taken place for now over 500 years of Israel's history. So what does it take to get off of the roller coaster? I want to remind you of what Doug covered last week, and that's a commitment to the word of God. That's exactly what we saw. And just re real quick, uh, they lifted up in verse 6, they lifted up their hands, they bowed their heads, they worshiped the Lord, their faces were to the ground, all the people wept, they heard words of the law, there was great rejoicing, they understood the words that were declared to them. So it was a wonderful, wonderful, uh, positive experience. But is it possible, is it possible after such a, an incredible high as this, as Nehemiah chapter 8, to come crashing down and all of a sudden to turn away and forget the word. It obviously is. So, I, and I think particularly so, it can happen if we think all of a sudden, you know what? It's all up to me. It's up to me. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I can work hard enough. And if we begin to have that attitude, we will drift away from the gospel so, so quickly. Actually, that's exactly what we do when we come 
to the point of trusting Christ. We get to the point where I, it's not up to me. I can't do it. It's not up to my intelligence. It's not up to my hard work. Um, it is up to the sufficiency of the atoning work of God through his son, Jesus Christ. When an individual comes to that point of making that determination, it's called redemption. When a culture comes to that point, it's called revival. But when an entire civilization comes to that point, it's called uh, a reformation. So it starts by going back to the way of God, and it ends with great rejoicing. So we come to the end of chapter 8. After 8, I mean, we are at the top of the roller coaster. This is incredible. And Nehemiah desperately does not want the same repeating uh, cycle that has been the um, pattern of their history. So in chapter 9, he does something very unusual. For most preachers, for most churches, we have this wonderful experience where there's weeping and crying and raising of hands and singing and exalting and reading the scripture and all that. We think, oh boy, can't get any better than that. We close in prayer and we send everybody home. But Nehemiah wasn't the average preacher. Nehemiah was a layman. So this layman is extremely practical. He says, you know what? We're not going, we're not going down the same road anymore. We need to begin to make some commitments. And that's chapter 9. He makes some commitments. He wants them to sign on the dotted line to make these commitments so that uh, they're no longer on the spiritual roller coaster because he realizes otherwise it's all superficial. If it's all just crying and weeping and reading and, 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 and waving hands and all that stuff, it's just all, it's, it's all superficial and there's nothing deep to it. So Nehemiah is going to drive them deep I have a good friend in Breckenridge, Texas. This is where I, when I got out of seminary, I pastored that church, and he and I were, are still very, very good friends. And I used to work cattle with Carl uh, for years, and he taught me how to ride, he taught me how to rope, and we would go out, he had uh, one ranch, 50,000 acres, and we'd go out, and it would take a week to push cattle to get ready to ship them. And uh, it, it was tough business, there's a lot of cactus and there's mesquite trees and and um, so Carl would always and this guy he is a just an absolute genuine cowboy and he would always sort of laugh and grin and make fun of, of all the people who would show up in town and they would have cowboy hats on they'd have boots and cowboy shirts and all that stuff and and he would call them drugstore cowboys because it was so superficial, all external, but there's nothing internal about them that was that they were a real cowboy. And believe me, I wasn't, okay? I think he just drugged me along. But it, it was fun, but uh, I was one of those drugstore cowboys. And he would always say, he said, oh, there's another one. They're all hat and no cattle. And you, you see, <laughs> or he would say, they're all foam and no beer. And so that's where, that's where Nehemiah is getting him. Nehemiah is saying, you know what? No more of this superficiality stuff. It's not going to cut it anymore being all hat and no cattle. It's not going to cut it anymore being all foam and no beer. So he's going to make them make some commitments. So not only is there a commitment to the Word of God, secondly, there's a commitment to confess and to begin to really deal internally with what's going on, dealing internally with some sin. 
And so that's exactly what happens. Uh, they, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, they separated themselves from the foreigners. They stood, they confessed their sins, their iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in the place. They read from the word, from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. So here, for another four hours, the same month, or for another four hours, they're reading from the word of God. And for another four hours, they're making confession and worshiping uh, the Lord. So Nehemiah 9 is a marvelous chapter. So today, I'm supposed to cover 9 and 10, and next week, uh, 11 and 12. There's no way I can read it all and, and uh, tell you what it means as well. So I'm going to give you an assignment. Chapter 9 is a fabulous, fabulous chapter. Chapter 9 is the longest prayer in the entire Bible that's not in the Psalter. So what I would like for you to do, here's your assignment. I mean, if, if you're going to be something more than all hat and no cattle, if you're going to be more than just foam and no beer, your assignment is to take Nehemiah chapter 9 and use that as your model for prayer and confession. You're going to see over and over and over, the, well, it's the whole history of Israel. The ups and the downs, the ups and the downs. You're going to see cycle after cycle after cycle of how they come, they, they confess, they get their, their act right with God, and then all of a sudden they get stiff-necked and they fall, they collapse, they're weeping, they're crying. And you see over and over, 13 times you see the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God over and over and over. Let me give you the theme. And I'm, that's your assignment to walk through the entire uh, chapter, and you're going to go through the entire history of Israel. You're going to start in Genesis 1. You're going to go through Exodus, through Sinai, Kadesh Barnea, number 13. You're going to go through the wilderness water, uh, wandering. You're going to see Joshua. You're going to see Judges. You're going to see the Kings period, the prophets, and then all the way through the exile and finally the regathering. You're going to see that through the whole book. Here is the theme in this one prayer. The theme is this. God is just in his dealings because the nation has sinned. God is just, yet God is merciful with his people. You'll see that 13 times, how merciful he is with his people. Folks, we are where we are today because of the mercies and the compassions of God. Every single one of us, we are where we are today because of the mercy and compassion of God. So please do that. Take that and work your way through that uh, sometime. Probably if you don't do it today, you probably will forget it and it won't be done. So sometime today, uh, before your nap, uh, just <laughs> take out Nehemiah uh, chapter 9 and, and just use that as your source of prayer. And use that as, as a motivation for you to confess and get your heart right with God. What I want to do now is as you're going through it, I want to give you some observations dealing with confession. So what we're going to see, six observations that go from confession through resolve. Once you're confessing and you're making a resolve, a resolution to do something, which leads to repentance. Okay, So I'm, I'm going to just give you six, six things to consider, to think about as you work through this passage uh, this afternoon. Okay, First of all, confessions, it, it usually follows along a common pathway. And here's the pathway. The first is, we are sinful. I mean, the Bible's full. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, etc. We are sinful. Secondly, God is just in the way he deals with us. God is just. Thirdly, God graciously works in our lives to bring us back because he's merciful, because he's compassionate, because he's good, not because we deserve it. 
None of us should boast because of our good works. Okay? So that is the gospel. That is the place every single person should get to. This is the sinner's prayer. That the only way I can get right with God is through something he does for me because I don't deserve anything. It's so it's my trust, my faith in him for what he's done for me because I am a sinner. There's nothing I can do to please him. There's none righteous, no, not one. Secondly, confession leads to a commitment. It leads to a resolve. So Nehemiah says, okay, I'm not going to let you get on the spiritual roller coaster again. We're going to all sign on the dotted line. And that's verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are, are the names of our princes and the, our Levites and our priests. So it leads to commitment. It leads to resolve. Third is, confession is, it's a, the word in the New Testament is homo legeo. Homo legeo, homo, the same, legeo, to say. It, a confession is to say the same thing about God that he has taught us about himself. It's saying the same thing about how he views us, that we've fallen short, that we, you've heard the word, to sin means to miss the mark. We've, we've missed the mark. And it's, God is just, God is merciful, God is sovereign. So we're saying the same thing about who God is and who we are. Fourthly, confession always follows, and you'll see this in chapter 9 throughout the entire chapter. Confession always follows with praising God because he has given us so much more than we deserve. And one example that you'll read, you'll get to the part about Kadesh Barnea. And you, you'll see they talked about we, our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They didn't obey the commandments. They refused to obey. They weren't mindful of the wonders. They stiffened their neck. They returned uh, to to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready. You're ready to forgive, to be gracious, merciful. You're so slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. So confession then really, in a nutshell, just says, Lord, I am wrong. You are right. You are holy. I've missed the mark. And so what happened was in this confession in Nehemiah chapter 9 basically means that the exile worked. The, the exile, there were 70 years in exile in Babylon. It, it did what God intended it to do. It, it actually worked. This exile was prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah even, even told us it's going to last for 70 years, this entire exile. And, and it did what it was supposed to do. Now you see them getting their lives right with God. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel, Ezekiel said that uh, in chapter 37, what would take place is now fulfilled in Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It, it's all fulfilled, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, you know, I was going to read it and I thought, oh, no, I, but I'm going to read some of it. It, it is so it is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it, it basically shows what's happening in Nehemiah. It's the, valley, the vision of the valley of dry bones. Son of man, can these... And this, this is the, 
of what's happening to Israel in exile. They're in exile. They've walked away from God. They've, they're stiff-necked. They've turned from God. Uh, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. You can probably hear that, that old spiritual come back to you. I prophesied, I'm skipping down, I prophesied, and as I commanded and I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, there was a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. Flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied and he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and they stood on their feet. They were an exceedingly great army. And he says, "Ah, behold, I'll open your graves, raise you from the grave and oh my people and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you will know that I am the Lord. Then you shall know that I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. And this is the most beautiful passage of how when the word of God really comes upon people and his spirit is poured upon people, he raises the dead. That's salvation. Without Christ, we are, we're dead. And until the Holy Spirit awakens us and, and vivifies us, without Christ, we have, we have absolutely nothing. This is the prophecy, Ezekiel 37, of what happens in Nehemiah when they're returned and, and we're seeing exactly what happens uh, to them. So sixthly, confession is a vital step in both restoration and change. Or I can put it this way, confession is a vital step in confession and repentance. Those two things. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to, so there's a forgiveness, and to cleanse us. That's that revivification. That's the, the change that we'll experience. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if it's true for ancient Israel, it will be true for you. How many of you know um, the first book of the New Testament that was written? Okay, I'll give you a hint. It's one of the Gospels. And you're probably, it's not the first one that's, that you see when you turn to the New Testament. What's the first book that was written in the New Testament? Anybody know? One of the Gospels. Mark. Yeah, Mark. First book that was written is Mark. Listen to the very first words of Jesus as recorded in the very first book written in the New Testament. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. Repent. That's the first word. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent, metanoia, meta, after, after, to change your mind. In other words, change your mind and put your faith, believe in the gospel. Jesus knew that we were made in the image of God. Jesus knew that we were falling short of of that image of God and that what we needed to do since we had missed the mark We needed to change our mind and turn to him. And so God uses the word of God to cause us to mourn and to weep. Um, And I I don't know if, does that seem strange to you? When you see your sin, if, if you cannot imagine weeping for your sins, then why not? 
Why not? So there is a commitment to the Word of God. There's a commitment to confession. And then thirdly, so commitment to the Word of God is Nehemiah 8. Commitment to confession is Nehemiah 9. And now we have chapter 10. And chapter 9 was this long prayer. Chapter 10 is commitment to um, obedience. Nehemiah chapter 10. Now, how many of you have memorized Nehemiah 10, verses 1 to 27? If you have your Bibles there, you'll see they're all names. Now, I'm not going to read it, and I'm not going to say much about those names, except that these are people who are very precious to God, and they were so precious that he freezes their name for all of eternity. Next week, when I wrap up, this section, then Doug will close it the following week on chapter 13. But next week, I'm going to spend a little bit of time telling you the importance. Why is one-third of the book of Nehemiah lists of names? I'm going to talk a little bit about the why. Why is it so important? And what does that mean for you and for me? That'll be, that'll be next week. But I will answer the question, what then is, if this is a commitment to obedience in chapter 10, what does obedience look like? If we're going to get off of this roller coaster, what does obedience look like? Uh, first of all, um, it's, there's a commitment to a life that exalts in the very words of God. That, that's, that's Ezekiel 37. That's what brings life to the bones. It brings bones to bones, causes bones to rattle and puts sinews in flesh and, and he breathes upon it to give it life. That's it. It's that same commitment. You'll see there in, in chapter 10, 28 to 29, uh, that they, they took an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rulers and his statutes. So real lasting change commences when there is an absolute commitment to exalt the Bible and to confession to the point where I'm willing to separate from the world's consensus and begin to actually obey the very words of the Lord. I mean, this is how the Psalter starts. Think of the Psalms, how they start. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, you, you can see that they're, they're breaking away uh, from the world's consensus nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. There is a commitment to the very words of God. Or he said to Joshua at the conquest, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. Jesus said the very same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. When we, when we get through with, with Easter, that, that'll be an awesome series, and that'll start in a couple of weeks. We'll go through Easter. Then we'll start with the Beatitudes. We'll take a number of weeks to go through the Beatitudes, and at a later date, we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount. But when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. There's a commitment, not just to listen, not just to do, not just to wave your hands and sing and, and feel bad and weep and cry, but there's a commitment to actually hear them and do them. He will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded 
on the rock. You see the very same commitment in the book of Revelation. I warn everyone who hears the words in the prophecy of the book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So real change demands a commitment to obeying the revealed will of God as it's expressed in the very word of God. Folks, listen, without that, without that commitment to the revealed will of God, there can be all the singing and weeping and crying and waving of hands and praising you want to, but I'll tell you what, without that internal change, it's all hat, no cattle. It's all foam and no beer. I mean, this is not, this is not the New Testament picture of sanctification where the creature becomes submissive to the creator. You know, it could be, if it just stops at externalities and doesn't get to the internal, it's just a Gnostic experience. So it must be coupled with something deep that happens within the inside. That's Ezekiel 37, where there is life to the soul. And he'll pour his spirit out upon us. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of the resurrection when Jesus goes to pre- prepare, not only just to prepare a place, but to send his Holy Spirit so where God himself can live, live within us. Uh, so what does obedience look like? An obedient life exalts the Bible. Secondly, uh, an obedient life serves God and God alone. There are no other masters. It serves God and God alone. And verse 30 says, we'll not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And you might think, well, Jeff, where do you get that out of that? Well, the point was, back then, to take a foreign wife meant that you also embraced the God of that wife. And so he says, no, don't do that because there can only be one God. You can't serve two masters. You can't do it. So when Solomon took foreign wives, he also embraced the deities of these foreign wives. That's why he left a divided kingdom. When Ahab took Jezebel, a Phoenician wife, he also took Baal as, as a god. That's why he ended up in so much trouble. There cannot be two gods or two masters in a person's life. That's why Nehemiah was saying, you you have to make a commitment here. You can't have two gods. That's why when these two ladies, remember they they, they were arguing about whose child is it. So the two ladies went to Solomon and Solomon in all of his wisdom says, bring me a sword. He said, I'll just divide the baby in half and each of you mothers can have half the baby. And of course, the real mom says, oh no, absolutely not. Do not do that. Why? Because a divided child is a dead child. So let let me ask you, does Satan only want part of you or does he need all of you? Folks, listen. He doesn't, Satan doesn't need all of you. He just needs a part. Why? Because a divided kid is a dead kid. You can't have two masters. Ladies, let me ask you a question. For those of you who might be married. Let's just say your husband came home to you 
and said, Honey, I love you so much. You are so precious to me. But I'll tell you what, I, I met this woman, and she's really nice too, and but I, I don't want to give up on you. I really like you an awful lot too, but I like her. And would it be okay if just maybe three times a week I would take her out to lunch? Is that okay? Guys, let me tell you, you submit that proposal to your wife, and you had better duck. Because I'll tell you what she will tell you. She would say, Honey, a divided husband is a dead husband. So, <laughs> and the truth of that, you know, we, we laugh at that. It, it seems funny. It almost seems ridiculous that, that we could even think of something like that. We, we know that that could never work in a marriage. So why do we try it with God? Well, why do we try that with, with the author of the entire universe? God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit wants every single bit of you. There can't be two masters. That's why in Revelation at the Church of Laodicea, it says, I would e rather you either be hot or cold. Be one or the other, please. Because if you're lukewarm, I'm going to have to spew you out of my mouth. Or Elijah. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah said to, to Israel, literally it says, how long? Remember, this is, their, this is their pattern, this. He says, how long are you going to continue limping between two crutches? If the Lord is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. It reminds me, as years ago, this great, great Presbyterian preacher by the name of Peter Marshall, uh, who was a, a Scotsman, and he was the pastor of the New York, New York Street Presbyterian Church in downtown Washington, D.C. Uh, he said, uh, to an extremely influential and prosperous congregation, he said in that Scar Scottish brogue, if the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, Serve him and go to hell. Now, if you're the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, you could probably get away with something like that. But basically, Peter Marshall was just saying to this congregation, you can't compromise. Because a divided kid is a dead kid. So please, either be hot or cold. Don't compromise between two gods. You know, and I say this in all love and in all respect. I, I know there are some people that come to church week after week after week. You know, for some reason they feel obligated to come. Uh, let me just urge you. Stop. Stop. You know, if you have really heard the gospel and you are stiffening your neck against the gospel, and yet you still feel some obligatory commitment to pacify somebody by coming, don't do yourself the disservice of dishonoring God. Be either hot or cold. This lukewarmness does not please God at all. Save yourself some gas. 
you know, there's some great preseason uh, baseball games on TV. You could, you could stay home, you could watch TV, you could catch up on work uh, that the last week you weren't able to catch up on. You can get your homework done. Uh, you can do some cooking for the rest of the week. There's a lot of things you can do. Please don't dishonor God. I'm not saying that if you are genuinely searching. If you are here searching, trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, please come. Please talk to us. But, but don't do God the disservice or you the disservice of just week after week after week playing games with God. Don't do it. The plea from Nehemiah, the plea from Thomas, the, the plea from Jesus, the plea from John, the plea from Peter... The, the plea from Peter Marshall is get off the fence. Get off the fence. Be either hot or cold. Don't keep limping between two crutches. So what does obedience look like? I mean, this is a layman, folks. This isn't a, pre- a normal preacher wouldn't say something like that. This is just a layman who knows how to lay down bricks. So he just, he says it like it is, period. He just lays it on the ground. A committed, obedient life exalts the Bible. A committed, obedient life serves God alone. Thirdly, a committed and obedient life lives by faith. Verse 31, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So bottom line, what they're doing here is they're going, hey, we've got to make a buck. Why in the world should we come on Sunday when we could be working making money? And are you kidding me about this Sabbath rest? I mean, every seventh year we're supposed to let our, our, the land just sit there and rest? And, and not make a profit? Are you kidding me? So by sight, not by faith, but by sight, this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So, you know, if I can make a buck, I'm going to make a buck. Forget all that stuff. That's what they were saying. So for us, folks, let me tell you, we have absolutely no redemptive obligation to the marketplace. I will guarantee you right now, you can just write it down in your little notebook there, that the marketplace cannot, will not, ever give you life. You you will never, ever have to stand at the end of your life before Wall Street and give account for anything. And you will never be embraced by Wall Street for anything ever. You'll never hear Wall Street say to you, well done, good and successful investor. You are faithful with your allocations and your dollar cost averaging. So I will put you in charge of an even greater portfolio. Enter into the joy of the land of critical mass. Let me just tell you, you will never, ever hear that from Wall Street. But you will, however, stand before God and therefore you have an obligation to be obedient to Him and to Him alone. You can't waffle 
between two masters. And yet they did it. Israel did it. Folks, how many years? 500 years they blew the sabbatical off. 70 times they blew off the sabbatical. So guess what happened after 500 years? There was a balloon payment. So they went into captivity for 70 years. So you've got to choose God or mammon. Fourth, what does obedience look like? It means giving your best to God. And the whole chapter ends with a list of the not only the required giving, but the free will giving. The required giving where they have to bring the tax for the upkeep of the temple. They brought wood and grain and supplies to support the Levites and the priests. Uh, but it also involved giving of the free will giving, giving of their first fruits. Uh, e- even their firstborn, not, not only the firstborn of their cattle, but the firstborn of their children. So in other words, you're to give your absolute best to God. You're to give God your best. You're to give God the first of everything. So what about it? What about a New Testament Christian? What about a believer in Jesus Christ? You know, never are we commanded as obligatory giving the tithe for for a believer. I mean, the tithe was an example of giving even before the law. So pre-law, you had Melchizedek who gave a tenth part. So it's a wonderful example of generous free will giving. So I think that's why in a lot of churches you, there's a lot of talk about the tithe. So I think it's a great example. It's, it's not the required giving. It's a great example of generous of, of generosity. But I think the point is for New Testament Christians is the point is we are to give our best. We're to give of our best. We're to give the first. We're to give off the top. And we're to do it in a way that brings honor and glory to God. I think that's the point. So we honor God by joyously giving him our first fruits and our best. We don't honor God by giving him leftovers. So um, do you see the way Nehemiah sees spirituality? I mean, the festivities are wonderful. Uh, In Nehemiah 8, he talks about enjoying uh, eating the fat and the drinking of the sweet wine. That's all wonderful. There's weeping and crying and all that's very good. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it has to come from something that has happened deep down inside the soul of an individual. Uh, And uh, so we've got to get down to the Bible. We've got to get down to how does that impact the home? How does it impact morality? How does it impact the job? How does it impact finances and and priorities? And if it doesn't do that, if it doesn't make an impact there, then as Carl would say, yeah, you're all hat and no cattle. You're all foam and no beer. And it would be a time then to do some self-examination, a time of prayer, a time of confession, a time of repentance, to have that obedient life that exalts the Bible, serves God alone, lives by faith, and gives the absolute best. Well, let's all stand up together. We'll close with prayer, and then we're going to end with a song. A song and a couple of announcements, okay? So, Father, we have enjoyed this hour of worship, of giving, of singing, of study, looking in your word. I pray, Lord, that if there are any husbands or wives or children or students uh, where there is just indifference or disobedience, 
I, I pray, Lord, that when they walk out of this place, that they would really begin to deal with it. And I pray that every person here would come under the constraint of the Lord God and respond to your word, to the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Lord, cause there to be a great rejoicing in our church because of the objectivity of truth and also the subjectivity of our obedience. To live a life that exalts in your word, that is anxious to serve only you, that we're caught up in serving only one master, not two, that we are so eager to live, not by sight, but by faith, and to give you our best, the, the best of our of who we are, the best of our resources, the best, best of our time, the best of our talents. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's Word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.